Well, take your Bible. Now, listen, you may be thinking, I'm gonna, we're going to be in the book of Luke, but I'm going to have you turn to a couple other passages. But I promise we're going to come back to the book of Luke, right? Um, so, take your Bible. Actually, you know what? I'll go ahead and, and fulfill the expectation. Let's go to the book of Luke, Luke 19. So, if you're a guest, we've been going through the Gospels. This is called Discipleship in the Gospels. Um, and if there was a title, a title for today's message would be Jesus, the Son of Man for all sinners. Jesus, the Son of Man for all sinners. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, but uh, clearly you can see in this gospel that Jesus has come to seek and to save sinners. Matthew 19, uh, I'm sorry, not Matthew, that's another gospel. Luke 19, verse 10. Luke 19, 10. um, Matthew 19, 10, I'm sure is good as well. Verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So, if you're taking a theme of the book of Luke, most would say this is kind of the thematic verse of Luke. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus, the Son of Man, come to save sinners. Right? So that's the... That's the idea that you get when you read the book of Luke. There's other ideas you get, but if you're trying to reduce it down to one thematic theme idea, you have Matthew showing Jesus as king of the Jews, Mark showing him as a servant, John showing him as God, here showing him as the son of man. 25 times that phrase, son of man, is mentioned in Luke. We did a whole message at the very beginning of this series. I believe it's either number one or two about a lot about that phrasing the son of man but that's what luke over and over is using uh jesus loved to use that designation son of man that's tied into daniel chapter third chapter 7 verse 13 um and the that verse basically says that when the son of man comes he will have all dominion and reign and authority and he will be coming in the clouds and so the luke uses this over and over but also that phrase son of man ties us into Adam, right? We're all of one race. That race is the race of Adam. And in that race, we've all fallen. But in Christ, the second Adam, all of the human race has the ability, actually, to not be subject to the curse of the fall through faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, Adam, so Jesus is that second Adam. He's the son of man. He's the Adam that makes all right what the first Adam did wrong. And if, as you read the Gospels, you discover Jesus is the one who does that. You've got Adam in the Garden of Eden. He has everything a man could ever want. He has all the food he could eat. He's got all the land he could eat. He's got a wife. They are naked and not ashamed, right? And he's got everything a man could want, every reason to say yes to God. Then you've got Jesus in the wilderness, right? No food, no companionship, nothing, right? And he tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Um, and he says yes to God. Adam has every reason to say yes to God. He says no to God. Jesus is in the most inhospitable environment and still says yes to Jesus. So this son of man that Luke talks about right here, he is the one who will come back and establish his reign, but he also is the one who is the son of man. He makes right all that the first, uh, the first man Adam did. So not 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's what, that's what Jesus has come. That's what Luke's trying to get across here. 
Luke is kind of like, I would say, like an old shoe. Have you ever bought a new pair of shoes? And then, I mean, they're great, they're comfortable, they kind of have a spring. And then you go home and put on the old shoe. And it's kind of like, man, your foot just kind of fits in it real good. I mean, you like the new shoe, but man, there's just something about the way everything was kind of molded around your foot to the old shoe. Well, once you've kind of looked at Matthew and Mark, and then you get to Luke, Luke is almost like an old shoe. It's like you read Luke and you're thinking, oh, I've, some of these stories, some of these passages seem very familiar. But Luke actually goes into a little bit more detail in many of these uh, stories that you might have read in Matthew and Mark. And actually, and there's some instances where Luke goes a little bit further, and we'll discuss that here in a little bit. First, let's look at the man Luke. So if you're an outline person and you're looking for an outline, point number one, Luke the person, the person who wrote this, Luke. Now, this is where we're going to turn to some other scriptures to kind of look at who is Luke. Uh, Luke, the one who wrote this book of Luke. First, take your Bible and go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Once again, the reason we're doing this series, we're calling it Discipleship in the Gospels, I'm trying to take different portions of the Gospels. Um, and and I've kind of been taking this idea, like, for instance, several weeks back, we looked at the idea, the wording, the Son of Man. Why was that said so much? We looked at the idea of when the word Messiah or anointed is being used, and why does Jesus actually say sometimes, don't tell anybody who I am? We looked at that. So we're trying to solve some big issues that in your discipleship with the Gospels are going to come up, even in your own reading We've done, an intro, we've done kind of an overview of Matthew, an overview of Mark. Uh, now we're going to do kind of an overview of Luke. We're not going into everything in the text, but we're trying to give you enough that when you come to the text to read the book of Luke, there's some things you start to realize. Now, our first point on our outline would be Luke the person. And look in Colossians chapter 4, and you're going to get a little bit of the idea about Luke the person. Go to chapter 4 and go to verse 14. It says, actually, I'm going to go ahead and take you up to 10, then we'll go down to verse 14. Look at verse 10. Aristarchus, by the way, good baby name if you're looking for one. My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings. And also Mark, y'all remember this guy, John Mark? We talked about him last week. The cousin of Barnabas, whom you have received instruction. If he comes, you welcome him. Now, the context of this, Paul is in his first Roman imprisonment. This is what's called a prison epistle. He's in a Roman prison. Mark's there with him. Uh, Aristarchus is there. Verse 11. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the, what does it say? The circumcision. So they're Jewish, all right? Those are Jewish men that are with Jesus. And they have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, keep looking, it'll, we'll come to Luke. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. So we got some people that are with, with Paul, his first Roman imprisonment. We got some people there. Some of them are of the circumcision, they're Jewish, but there's some Gentiles there. And we have one guy in verse 14 who's not in the circumcision, he's a Gentile. In verse 14, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. So, Luke, this is the guy that wrote the gospel of Luke. And here we can see that 
he is actually a Gentile. So we're dealing with a man who is non-Jewish. The writers of your scriptures are Jewish men, but you have Luke here, the only Gentile New Testament writer, and he's a Gentile. He's writing. Um, This is a big thing. This is why we would say Jesus, the Son of God, uh, for sinners, is that it was thought by many, especially Jewish people at that time, that the Messiah would just be for Jewish people. But obviously, here is a Gentile writing for all, but even for Gentiles, those who were not a part of the people of God of the Old Testament. So that's, that's Luke. You can read about him. He's right here in his first Roman imprisonment. Go to Philemon and just turn to your right, just a couple of books. Go to Philemon. Philemon, verse 24. We see, and it's just one chapter, so you'll pass it real quick. Philemon, verse 24. You're just going just a couple books to your right. Philemon, 24. There's just one chapter. This is Paul. Once again, he's still in Roman imprisonment. You can look in verse, we'll, we'll build it out. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. This is Philemon, verse 23. Now this is Philemon, verse 24. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow worker. Right? What's really interesting is Luke, his name is not mentioned. He doesn't talk about himself in third person or anything when he writes the book of Luke. Um, we, we don't really get a lot of information about Luke, but there are a couple of places where his name is mentioned, so we can kind of track chronologically where is Luke at. So Luke's a Gentile. He, um, it, when we read other passages in Scripture about Luke, we find out, and we're not going to really spend time going to it, but if you're a note taker, you can write down Acts chapter 16. If you're a note taker, Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 11. Luke is with Paul during his second missionary journey. You can write down Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Luke basically gets, uh, stays put in Philippi at that second journey. And you can write down Acts chapter 20, verse 5. Luke actually gets picked back up at the third missionary journey, right? So, uh, of Paul. So, Luke is a guy who's been around. Uh, he's really been around the Apostle Paul a lot. Second, third missionary journey, you can see Luke around. Luke's a Gentile, but also go over to 2 Timothy. I want to show this to you about Luke. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. In 2 Timothy, this is Paul, what would mean, would say during his second Roman imprisonment. This is where he's actually going to meet his death. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you would only have to go from Philemon just to your left, just a couple books be diligent to come to me soon, he says, for Demas, having loved his present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. And then look at verse 11. Only who is with me? Luke. Only Luke is with me. By the way, remember we looked up last week. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for service to me. Remember, Mark kind of has redeemed himself by the end of Paul's life for leaving the missionary journey earlier we talked about last week. But look, Luke is faithful. He's a faithful companion to Paul. We see it picked up through the second and third missionary journeys. That's Luke. That's who we're dealing with. Uh, He is Dr. Luke, many would call him. He is the beloved physician. If you know anything about physicians of that day, if you're a physician nowadays, you have a high esteem, right? And, and people think high of you, right? Now, 
HR may not, right? If you're like a cowboy physician, but everybody else thinks like you're great. But in their day and age, physicians weren't seen as great people. They were they were kind of seen as charlatans. A lot of times, some of their medicine was actually suspicious, and they were known for draining people of resources and really not having a great remedy, right? Um, sometimes their medical science at that time was not always hard science. But Luke seems to be a different guy. He is the beloved physician. Physicians weren't typically loved. They were kind of looked at with a lot of suspicion that they basically, you know, peddled a bunch of snake oil kind of thing. So, see, see, you could almost probably go in their society like tax collector, physician, right? Fisherman, which is just kind of hilarious, right? What are the type of people that are following Jesus, right? It's not just the all those that have all the accolades. So this is the guy we're talking about, Luke. <clears throat> That's a little bit about him, his tie to Paul, his missionary journeys. He's a faithful, uh, a faithful co-laborer with Paul. Um, I would say not everybody's sure where his conversion happened, but if I had to pin it, a lot of people think he was saved uh, at Antioch in Acts chapter 11. It would be during that time. A lot of people think that's where his conversion probably was. He was not an eyewitness to anything. That, so when he writes the book of Luke, he's not a guy that was there and saw what was going on. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Let me give you uh, some more background about him that you probably already know now that I've just told you. Um, actually, I already told you his background. Look at that. Keep moving here. But we're still on point number one, Luke. His professional life, I already told you he was a physician. But also, when you start reading the book of Luke, you find out he's also a historian and he's also a very good writer. He, he's able to write in such a way that he can paint a picture. There was this guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. You ever heard of this guy, right? Great Baptist preacher of yesteryear in England. And one of the things he was really great about in his sermons is he knew how to paint a visual picture, right? And so when you get to Luke, you find that his writing is a lot different from Matthew and from Mark, definitely from Mark. Mark's just kind of getting to the point. But Luke kind of pulls you in and uses... Vivid imagery sometimes just to kind of pull you in. For instance, now you can turn over to the book of Luke where it probably all makes sense. Like, oh, we're looking at the book of Luke. Why would we not be in Luke? Go to chapter 22. I'm going to show you. uh, There's different places, but I think these will be probably more memorable to you. We're just looking at Luke the person. Large vocabulary, gifted communicator, gifted physician. You remember when Jesus is in the garden and you remember when it says, and he sweat as it were great drops of blood. You know what I'm talking about, right? You go to Luke chapter 22, look in verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him. By the way, he gives some details that not other gospel writers give. We're in the garden of Gethsemane, right? The garden, not this, not let this cup pass for me, not my will, but what? But thine be done, right? Okay. But notice this in verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. The other gospel writers don't talk about this angel coming and strengthening him in the garden. But even notice this. And being in agony. One of the things you see about Luke is he's a physician. He notices things. And he, he's very descriptive. He's showing the agony and the emotion that Jesus is in in the moment. But also he prayed very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, John, they don't talk anything about great drops of blood like sweat like from the ground. They describe the garden, 
of Gethsemane, but they don't go to this kind of length and detail, even mentioning the angel. Because Luke is a guy who is really a gifted historian. He's a gifted physician. He's very articulate. More than likely, he trained at the same school of Tarsus that Paul did. And so he's a really gifted man, and you can see that even in the fact of his writing. Uh, he's also a man of prayer and praise. If you really notice all the gospel writers, um, this man, out of all of them, really records a lot of praise. If uh, When you get to the very beginning of Luke, he captures Mary's song of praise in chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, he captures the praise that Zacharias has. Remember, the angels are praising Jesus, right? In chapter 2, the infant Jesus, that's in chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. Even this guy, and we'll look at him a little bit later, a guy named Simeon. You remember this guy when they come to the temple for consecration? And Simeon kind of recognizes, like, wait a minute. This is, this is the Messiah we've all been hoping for. He records the praise that Simeon has. So Luke is a guy who, even, even as a man who pre- pays attention to prayer and praise. In fact, he records more prayer segments in his gospel than the other gospels. Tradition says that he died as a martyr in Greece. Um, Some others say he died of natural effects at age 84. Um, Who knows what the truth on that is, but I do know this. Here is the man Luke. He's a beloved physician. He's a companion of Paul. He is an eyewitness to what he writes in here. And he compiles something that's very accurate so that we today could know that Jesus was the Son of Man for sinners. Now, if you're taking an outline, point number two on the outline, that's a little bit about the man Luke who wrote this, the date of writing. This one's a short one. Most, would, most all would agree that he wrote this around 60 A.D. And then there's a companion book to this that is the book of Acts that he wrote in about 62 A.D. So we're dealing with Luke writing events about 35 or so years after the cross when this writes. Now go over to Luke chapter 1. And now we're going to look at point number three, Luke's sources. If you're going to write something, what are your sources? Now, what to make really kind of sense, right, that we got the book of Matthew. Matthew was an eyewitness, right? Matthew was one of the disciples. He's hanging out with Jesus. So we would kind of, with Matthew's gospel, we would go, oh, you saw a lot of this. So, you know, that's really good. John, the book of John. John was a disciple of Jesus. John would have seen firsthand a lot of things that were going on. Mark, although Mark was not an eyewitness to everything in Jesus' life, Mark was, was actually probably at least at a bare minimum familiar with what was going on with Jesus. He, he wasn't with his disciples, but he obviously, as a late teenager during the life of Jesus, during his public ministry for three and a half years, he would have been aware of some things going on. And we see some indication as we went through Mark that Mark, as a teenager, may have been the guy that was in the garden that basically was wrapped up in a bed sheet and kind of you know, bed sheet gets pulled from him and he kind of runs away. That More than likely, this could be Mark. So Mark has some eyewitness, but then we know that Mark really captures a lot of his, uh, the rest of his gospel testimony from Peter, who was an eyewitness. But Luke, Luke did not get to see the life of Jesus. Luke was not there. He was not in Jerusalem. He was not there. So Luke is an eyewitness. He's gathering eyewitness testimony and writing a gospel now, go to chapter 1, verse 1, and I want to point out some things that are really interesting about Luke and the sources he's pulling from. He says in verse 1, chapter 1, "...insomuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled 
among us. First, I want you to notice this. Luke says, and we're on point number three, Luke's sources, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile an account. Notice Luke is saying, I'm not the first one who's done this. Now, obviously, at this point, we already have Matthew. We already have Mark. They are ordained of God, inspired by God accounts. But there are other accounts that were being written. You can't have a guy like Jesus come on the scene and people don't try to write things about this guy. So he's saying others have written accounts. We already know that has to include Matthew and Mark. There have, But he says, insomuch of many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. By the way, just a side note, people say, how do you know the Bible hasn't been corrupted? How do you know they didn't just make this stuff up? Well, there's too much corroborating evidence. I mean, it wasn't like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were the only ones writing about this Jesus guy. There were others. His imprint and impact changed the world. So you just can't make up stuff. This whole, the whole death, burial, resurrection, you just can't make that kind of stuff up. There's too much corroborating evidence historically. Verse 2, he says this. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So Luke says... I have done some eyewitness testimony. I've done some interviewing. Now, doubtless, Luke would have, uh, you know, remember John Mark and Luke are with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. Mark's on the way during his second Roman imprisonment. There's, you know, so more than likely he gets some information from Mark, right? We already know Mark and Matthew's gospel is there. More than likely he had access to other, other types of people. He's gathering eyewitness accounts. Paul is, uh, if you remember, Paul for two years at the end of Acts chapter 27 is on house arrest right before he goes to Rome. And it's supposed by many that during that time, that's probably when Luke did a lot of uh, gathering his testimony. So there would have been people that would have been around in that area of Israel, such as the eyewitnesses of the Jerusalem church, Jesus' mother, the 70 who were sent out. The 120 believers before Pentecost, the 500 who saw Jesus ascend, there would have been many who would have saw the life of Christ, let alone the Holy Spirit inspired him. But he says in verse 2, from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So Luke is gathering eyewitness testimony. And here's what's interesting. When you read Luke's gospel, he includes things that Mark doesn't have, that John doesn't have. And that doesn't mean he's making up things. If anything, that tells you this must be an accurate representation. Because when Luke writes something, if you're just creating flimsy things out of the air, that would immediately have negated the historicity of this gospel. What what Luke writes must have had some validity, so much so that some, although Mark may not write about it or Matthew, because they're not trying to... Con- when they write their Gospels, they're not trying to capture every single detail. They have certain things they're trying to accomplish about the life of Christ. The fact that Luke would say, great drops of blood, right? Means that that must have been actually very true. Mark and Matthew's Gospel, that, that wasn't one of their purposes to include that. But Luke, being a guy who loves literature, who has a keen sense of even, uh, even being a physician... A physician typically notices small things like drops dropping on the ground. Even interesting, when you read the Gospels about, when you read like Peter, you remember Peter? We all know Peter, right? Peter denies Christ, right? Well, even when you read in chapter 22 of Luke, Luke's the only one that records that once Peter does that last denial, um, 
that he locks eyes with Jesus about it, right? That like the other gospel writers don't even write about that, but it does here in Luke, which is very interesting. Keep looking at verse 3. Luke says, It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus. So this brings us to our fourth point. So our fourth point is Luke's accuracy. This book of Luke would have to have been a very, very accurate book and uh, very accurate because he's writing not just in general. He's writing to this most excellent Theophilus who has some kind of title. He's a really important guy. He's obviously a believer. He's obviously more than likely someone that Luke is discipled or has an imprint. But Luke says in verse 3, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write out for you in orderly sequence, O excellent Theophilus. He's trying to come up with a, let me give you the sequence of things that are happening. Let me give you some chronological order. Verse 4, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you've been taught. So he says, so Theophilus, he writes to this man named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, I'm going to carefully research. It's been carefully investigated. Now, what's interesting is when you get to the book of Luke, Luke is also part one of, of, of what is a two-part series. When you get to the book of Acts, the book of Luke is actually the, the second part, right? They actually connect to each other. Um, go to point number five, this is, which brings me to point number five, Luke's original recipient. In the text, you saw Luke's original recipient, verse 3, this excellent Theophilus. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who Theophilus is. Um, he obviously is a believer. He's obviously someone who's interested in the truth of the gospel. Um, in Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he actually says that Theophilus was more than likely someone of, of also, at the same time, some kind of powerful position that Luke is writing about the life of Christ and how the life of Christ through the Holy Spirit is moved through Acts to justify all of what Paul has been doing. Because if you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is on Roman trial. And so uh, Josh McDowell has said that actually Luke, when he writes this, he writes an accurate account, but he writes it in such a way that it could be used in a court of law. It could be used to justify why Paul has been talking about this Jesus who died and was resurrected. Very plausible. I think it's interesting, though, that he's writing to this man named Theophilus. That's the first original recipient. This Theophilus is obviously not someone who is Jewish, which once again, Jesus, the son of man for sinners. He's for the world. He's for all. He's a Gentile writer is writing to a Gentile, telling about an orderly account, an accurate account of all the eyewitness testimony about who Jesus is, that he is Luke 19, 10, the son of man who has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, it's interesting about the word Theophilus. Um, that word Theophilus means lover of God or loved by God, Theophilus. By the way, have you noticed no one names their kid Theo anymore? You know, um, if all y'all remember, if you, I guess if you're a child of the 80s and the early 90s, is when I say the word Theo, what, you, what show comes up in your mind? The Cosby Show, right? I often wonder sometimes, like, that was a very popular show, actually, from what I remember. I, I hear it was like the most popular show until 90210, and then like, you know, everybody gravitated towards that for some reason. A terrible idea. But, but the Cosby Show was really popular, and you had his son Theo, if you can remember. Now you can remember Theo probably didn't have all his act together, wasn't 
educating himself the way that, that Dr. Huxtable was and all this. And so I wonder sometimes, is that why America stopped picking the word Theo? Because that word Theo actually is a really good word. It means a lover of God. Once again, you're needing a baby name, right? Here's a really good one. Lover of God, loved by God, Theo. But that's what this word, his, this word means, Theophilus means, right? Um, so this is the original recipient. Now this Theophilus, I don't know if he did have kind of, it's obviously a Roman name. It, 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 I think uh, Josh McDowell had a lot of um, insight in, in the thought that maybe he does have actually some kind of way to kind of actually defend Paul and that this letter is defending while Paul is doing what he's doing. But I do know this. If you're Luke and you're a man known for precision, you're a highly skilled physician and literary genius and historically accurate, when you write a gospel and you do a two-parter, you're going to actually take great pains to make sure the details of this thing are actually right. So that's the original recipient is this Theophilus, but this book makes it to the rest of the world. It goes to all the Gentiles. Now, Point number six, if you're taking notes, point number six I have is this. Interesting facts about the book of Luke. Interesting facts about the book of Luke. Do any of y'all like documentaries? Any of y'all like documentaries? There's only so much I can take of just sitcoms and TVs and movies. At some point, it's like, this is the same story told over and over, right? I mean, no one's creative anymore. And so it's like, I'd just rather watch a documentary and fill my mind with a whole bunch of facts that probably aren't going to be really that useful, right? Like I, I watched a documentary um, recently about the 90s, right? And uh, man, I got a whole lot of facts about the 90s. It hasn't served me at all this week for some reason. I'd done me a bit of good. That <laughs> helped me at all. But man, that's just better than another Marvel movie at times, right? Here's some interesting facts about Luke. It's a, like I told you, it's a two-volume set. So I just showed you Chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Hold your place there and go to the book of Acts, which just turn over a handful of books to your right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the first account. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account. Oh, who does he say? Theophilus. I compose about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So, He's referring back to his book, the book of Luke. Then he says, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had been given the Holy Spirit, had been given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, um, so now Theophilus, uh, now Luke is writing to Theophilus saying, here's part two. I wrote about the life of Jesus. Now I want to write about what the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is now doing in the church. And he kind of goes forward with the book of Acts. So that's just fun facts about Luke's gospel. Um, His gospel, if you read the book of Luke and you read the book of Acts together, it spans about six decades of history, right? So if you want to get a good breath of understanding the New Testament, if you were to read Luke and Acts, you're actually going to have a great understanding of the breadth of basically six decades of gospel work. 40%, another interesting fact, 40% of the material in Luke's gospel is not found in the other gospels. And actually, half of the words in Luke's gospel are actually the words of Jesus. So if you're looking for, man, what, what gospel has the most red-letter edition kind of stuff, it'd be the gospel of Luke. Luke's gospel, um, other interesting facts about it. 
Luke, out of all the writers, Luke actually captures the idea of the doctrine of justification more than the other gospel writers. If you're a person who likes to take notes, you could write down Luke 18, 14. You could write down Luke 7, 36 through 50. You write down Luke 15, 11 through 32. Luke 19, 1 through 10. You, you, Luke 15, 11 through 32. Does anybody know what Luke 15, 11 through 32 is a real popular parable? The prodigal son. Everybody knows that one, right? But it's interesting. That's Luke. And that prodigal son is one that actually shows you justification. Justification means you're declared righteous, not by anything you've done. Right. Remember in the prodigal son, the prodigal comes back. He's just throwing himself on the mercy of the father. Right. He's realized that he's gone and spent everything in righteous living. So he's one who talks about this idea of justification uh, declared righteous by God's own work. By the way, um, I, I don't know if I should give it away or not. Am I allowed to tell people that you're preaching here in a couple of weeks or anything like that? I'm allowed to. I just did. So too late now. So, by the way, uh, Austin's going to be preaching here in a couple weeks here. I'm looking forward to it. Um, he, we talk, we've been talking about it. He's going to preach on justification. Now you're stuck. Now you're going to have to preach it, right? Um, so um, we're looking forward to that. So he was, he's the one that talks about justification the most, right? You got the parable of the prodigal son, which, by the way, the parable of the prodigal son, not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in John. It's unique to Luke's. What's also interesting about Luke is Luke talks more about women than the other gospel writers. All but five chapters. Every chapter of five chapters of Luke has some kind of story that involves women, right? You see, um, you see a lot of that. But in fact, what's interesting is Luke paints a picture of how women responded to the, to the death, to the death and burial resurrection of Jesus as opposed to some of his followers. You see some of his followers for the most part, they kind of like hang back or, you know, you know what happens with Peter. You know that they scatter from the garden. Uh, Palmer Robertson had this to say regarding women in the book of Luke. He says, women display uninterrupted devotion to Jesus by mourning and wailing as they follow him to the place of the crucifixion while his disciples abandon him. The same women who had followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee stand at the distance and observe everything that happens while he hangs on the cross. They then follow Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb, return home to prepare spices, and rest on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Luke even catalogs that women are the ones that discover the empty tomb. So you find Luke, even in his gospel, he does something that's very interesting, is he's actually mentioning how God is working through women not that other gospel writers are chauvinists or anything of that nature, but you find that Luke pays a lot of attention to that. Luke is a man of detail. You'll find in his gospel that he actually pays attention to the marginalized. He pays attention to the poor. He pays attention to the sick. He's a man of detail. He doesn't miss things. What's also interesting about Luke is he tracks the genealogy of Jesus and he does it differently than Matthew. Have you ever read Matthew's gospel genealogy? How many of y'all love genealogy? Anybody love genealogy? It's like you read the Bible, you're like, yes, thank you, right? Or is it more of like, hey, great, that's on my Bible reading plan today. I just have my Bible reading plan today. Let's skip over all these words. Like, what does it mean anyways? What's interesting, um, I hasten to show you this, but why not? So do this. Go to Luke, take a look at Luke. This is all free. What's very interesting. 
Look at Luke chapter 3 and look in verse 23. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Here's what's interesting. Luke takes the genealogy of Jesus from Adam all the way to Joseph. Notice, Jesus is the son of man for sinners, right? He's the He's the Adam that he's the second Adam makes right all the first Adam. So when you get to Luke's genealogy, he takes from all the way to Adam and gets all the way to Joseph, Jesus' father. Where Matthew in his gospel does not start at Adam, right? He starts at Abraham. Matthew really tries to attract Jesus to be the Messiah, the king. He tries to establish his legal lineage. But Luke is not trying to establish Jesus' legal lineage. He's really trying to establish his biological lineage. Now, I know all of us have studied genealogy quite a bit, so um, I'm going to solve an issue for you. And I, I may not solve it, I may not, but here's a plausible explanation that may have some merit. What's interesting in Luke's uh, gospel, when he gives the genealogy of Jesus, if you go down to verse 31, you see that it puts Jesus, the son of David, right? We all know that, right? Look at Luke 3.23, you see the son of David. Then after the son of David, we see who? Oh, going up, which would be down. Nathan, there you go, right. I'm getting, you know, descending order up order, right. Nathan, in Matthew's gospel, he says Solomon. Nathan and Solomon were brothers. Well, why is, why is Luke, why does Luke decide to take Davidic, you know, lineage through Nathan, where Matthew takes it through Solomon, right? Well, you get to the very top, look in verse 23. It says, And he began his ministry. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Then who is Joseph's dad? Eli, right? You might say Healy, right? Now go over to Matthew chapter 1 and go to verse 16. Now, already, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. But Luke tracks it through Nathan. Now, keep going down and go to verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph. That's chapter 1, verse 16 of Matthew. But wait a minute. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says that Joseph was the son of Heli. Now, a lot of people have said, like, aha, the Bible's incorrect, it's inaccurate, copyists, and ah, it's wrong. I would say, no, actually, here's what we're dealing with, that, that, and I think this ties it up the best that I can find. From what we, what we know, a high, there's a high probability that, remember, Luke's tracking the biological genealogy, right? Son of man, right? Son of Adam, biological. Matthew is cataloging the legal genealogy. Matthew's legal genealogy has to include that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is from the Davidic throne. Tracked through the king, from King David to King Solomon, and tracks it down. He is the king of the Jews, right? Luke is capturing him in a different light. 
He is the Son of Man. I mean, he's king, don't get me wrong. When you read Son of Man in Daniel 7.13, you see that. But here's what many suppose is what's happening. I think it's a plausible explanation. That the Leverat marriage, which was basically if, if you're married and then you die, your brother or someone in that tribe or clan can then raise up seed and like goes in and marries that wife. So more than likely, here's what a lot of people believe, that Jacob in Matthew one sixteen is the legal father in, in the sense of, of Joseph, as in he was the one that married Joseph's mom first. Jacob dies. And part of, and, and part of how Israel society works is that there is that Levite marriage that a brother or someone of a close kinsman would then come in and marry that, that woman so that seed would be raised up to that legal lineage. And so what many would believe is that the son of Heli, Eli, right here, is actually a, a, it's a Levite marriage. It's, this is Joseph's biological father. He comes in and he, he provides a child to Joseph, you know, that results in Joseph, his mother, where her husband Jacob had died. And this is why Luke catalogs the biological lineage he, and he takes it actually through Nathan because that's how you track Heli is through Nathan and where Matthew will actually track it through Solomon because it's tracking the legal lineage of Jesus to the kingly throne of Messiahship where Luke is going through to actually his human biology. Now you might have just now went, Nick, I lost you about five minutes ago. But for some of you, we might have just solved a great tension. Now do this, go back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. These are just some interesting things about the book of Luke. When you look at Luke, the first four chapters, it gives us so much about the early life of Jesus that others don't. And I think it's really, man, it's such a blessing. It's, it's kind of peculiar. For instance, um, go to Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. Luke chapter 2 verse 40 says, Now the child Jesus continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We don't get to find a lot of that. I mean, Mark doesn't say anything about his early life. His, you know, John just goes right into his God and talks about John the Baptist and keeps going. Matthew talks about the early life of Jesus, but it really has a lot to do with the persecution that's happening from Herod. They flee down to Egypt, uh, the wise men coming. We don't learn a lot about just Jesus as a human, as the son of man. What's he even like in his early years? And we don't really get a lot. But Luke provides that. Why is that? Because Luke is doing an eyewitness, detailed account of the life of Jesus to substantiate who Jesus is. And he does some interesting things that the other gospel writers don't. He catalogs even Jesus as a young 12-year-old boy about how he's kind of responding to life. So what's interesting, look in Luke 3, verse 40. Now the child continued to grow, become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So here's Jesus, right, growing in the grace and knowledge of God. Jesus is a, was a human being, right? He did things that humans do, right? He grew and developed. Now, we all love this story in Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, I think I told you three a while ago. That was wrong. Chapter 2, verse 40. Go to chapter 2, verse 41. Look at it. We get a picture of Jesus at 12 years old that the other gospel writers don't give us. We don't even kind of know what, what's going on. Look about Jesus at 12 years old that Luke provides us. 
an insight into the Son of Man that's come to seek sinners. The Son of Man who is growing in grace, even as a young child, even getting into his preteen years. It says in verse 41, His parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Verse 42, And when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after finishing the days of feast, and the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem... But his parents did not know. Now, have you ever read that and thought to yourself, man, I feel good about my parenting. Like, I have never left my kid behind in Jerusalem. I mean, like three days journey, like, man, they were terrible. I mean, if God could use them, God can use me, right? Maybe you've never gone that far. But, so what was happening here? Well, Jesus is 12 years old. Just so you know, what happened is you traveled in, in big parties because it was safer. And then what happened is when you were 12 years, before 12 years old, all the kids traveled with the moms, right? And if you're 12 years old and older, you travel with the men, right? And then at the end of the day, the men and women, they traveled separately. At the end of the day, they get together, right? Well, they travel and leave off. Mary's thinking, oh, he's 12 years old. He's hanging out with the men now. So she thinks, she didn't see Jesus around. The natural assumption is he's with Joseph, right? Joseph doesn't see Jesus. The natural assumption is, oh, he's with Mary. You know, he's 12, but you know, he's... He still wants to be around mom, right? And remember, they didn't have cell phones back then. Um, and they were all a lot smarter than our, than we probably are now, right? We have to be reminded, reminded back in that day, when everybody packed up to leave, you got, you got in and you packed up and left, right? You didn't like hang out in your room or anything like that. Like you kind of, you know, you were a lot smarter than that. Um, a missionary recently told me that, um, <laughs> that, that someone had come to visit the missionary you know, overseas, and the, there was like this big hole or ditch outside the missionary's house, and this visitor from America had said, man, that ditch outside your house is very dangerous. We need to put up a sign that says, you know, don't step in this and fall in. And the missionary said to the American, you know, visitor, and just said, well, we would assume if you stepped in, you were just stupid. You know? <laughs> it's like, you don't need a sign, just don't be dumb. So there'll be a lot of that kind of as back then, like you weren't dumb, you just, you were... You didn't stay alone. You went with the group. That was like the natural duh thing to do. Well, they get to the end of the day and he's not there. Look at verse 44. But supposing the BIM be in the caravan, they went a day's journey. They began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. Verse 45. They did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And it happened after three days they found him in the temple. By the way, if you took three days to find your kid, how do you think you're going to feel? Feel a little hot, right? sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding, his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to the child, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? Which is the best, which is, you know, it's the dream of every teenager who disobeys their parents saying, well, I had to do it because I was about my father's business. Verse 50. But they did not understand the statement which we had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them. His mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Luke gives this story. The others don't. He includes this. He's trying to let us know Jesus was... The Son of Man, he was human. Here's what he's like. Even at 12 years old, you can see his growth and development. You can see him following God's clear path and will for his life. At the same time, 
practicing that aspect of his humanity, which is he was still required to obey his parents. But Luke gives us that unique perspective about what he was like that that other gospel writers don't give into the early life of Jesus. So these are just some peculiar, interesting things about, about Luke's gospel. Now, point number seven, Luke and the Holy Spirit. Luke discusses the ministry of the Holy Spirit more than any of the other gospel writers in, in, in the book of Luke, a lot more, right? Even before he was born, right, or during his coming in his birth, he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. Go over to Luke chapter 1. I'm just going to show this to you. We're not going to read whole passages. I'm just going to point out to you. Look, look at Luke 1.15. Luke 1.15. Talking about John the Baptist. And he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, right? So we're, we're seeing like even John the Baptist, this Holy Spirit, the age of the Holy Spirit is upon us. You see in chapter 1, verse 35, regarding Jesus, it says, The angel answered and said to her in verse 135, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 41, And it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary greeting the baby, John the Baptist in her womb leapt, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. We see a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit just in the birth narratives, but then go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the what? Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the what? Spirit in the wilderness. Go, um, so go to, go to Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that very time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the what? Holy Spirit. Luke captures the idea of the Holy Spirit more than the other gospel writers has an intense focus on it. And people would say, why? Because he's some charismatic, right? No. Um, Luke actually does that because you get, this is part one. What is part two of Luke's writing? Acts. And what is the book of Acts? It's tracking the Holy Spirit's work in the early church. And so it makes natural sense that Luke is going to make the connection of here's the Holy Spirit working in this gospel, here's the Holy Spirit working in the book of Acts. But he's the one that mentions the Holy Spirit and kind of brings it down, which is is really interesting. Jesus' life is a conundrum at times of how can you be fully God, fully man? How can you be these two things at once? We call it the hypostatic union. And Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit, walked by the Holy Spirit, obeyed the Holy Spirit, which just to say, like, Jesus' life is a normal life. Like, his, what is a normal life for us? To be led, filled, guided by the Holy Spirit through his word. So Jesus is a picture of a normal life. Next point, go to Luke chapter 2, and if you're, if you're writing down points, here's the next point. Luke gives us a picture of what the Jews who anticipated Genesis 3.15, how they lived. Luke chapter 2. You remember Simeon and... Do you ever wonder... Remember you read the Gospels and you see the Pharisees and Sadducees and it's kind of like, man, these guys... Man, these guys like... Man, they they seem to not really love Jesus, but look at, look at how 
people who, in the Old Testament, uh, looking for Jesus to come. Look how they respond to Jesus. Look in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This is infant Jesus being brought to the temple. The man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd see the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought the child to Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God. Then we have his praise of the Lord right there. So we can see that even Simeon even recognizes who Jesus is. We can Luke gives us a picture of how some people were actually loving on Jesus and were willing and wanting to actually look for this Messiah to come someday. Not everybody were like the Pharisees and scribes. The next point would be, you see in Luke, he gives us the very human side of Jesus. His birth, his consecration at the temple, his youth. He shows his development. Um, he, he even gives his interactions that are kind of minute. Do you remember Martha and Mary? Do you remember that whole situation, right? Where Martha, it says, was where Mary was cumbered about with much serving, but Martha's at the feet of Jesus, and, and Mary's kind of really upset about all that kind of stuff. The detail of the interpersonal relationships, the human side of Jesus. Now go over to Luke 24, and we'll end our message here. Luke 24, my time is out. Luke 24 is the very end of the book. Luke 24 is cataloging the, the resurrection of Jesus, just like Mark, just like Matthew, and just like John to be written later. The pinnacle of the crescendo of Luke is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, right? Written 35 years later, one author says this, written about 30 Five years after the events of the cross, Luke, the glory of that event for Luke had not subsided. So much so that you can see it in chapter 24, verse 50 through 53. Jesus is already already resurrected. He's already ascended. And it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple, blessing God. You can see Luke ends his gospel with saying, I mean, he opens up with praising God. He ends out with praising God. And he does it because of the resurrection of Jesus. He continues his next volume in Acts as a result of the death, burial, resurrection and what the Spirit is doing. And so Luke ends his gospel just the way any other gospel writer does. He ends it with the crescendo of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He ends it that Christ alone is your only hope and your only glory. Christ alone, that's why there can be so much joy. So Luke, he is the guy who's writing that the Son of Man is for all sinners. And I hope that all of us in here today know Jesus who has come and taken away our sins. You can't save yourself by your own works. You can only be saved by Jesus' work. Would you stand and pray with me, and then we'll have a time of singing to the Lord. Father, what a blessing it is to get to have your word, to get to learn about this guy, Luke, and and how he wrote about you. I am so appreciative of even how he uniquely has the Emmaus Road experience. The other gospel writers don't. 
That passage has challenged me many times to look at all of God's word. That the that this word of God would burn in us as the Old Testament scriptures are unraveled and we see Christ in it. What a blessing that this gospel writer has for us. If there ever was a doubt of a historically accurate book, Luke has shown us all the circumstantial evidence to write such a, a book as this and even gave us a part two. Let us worship you. Let us read this book. Let us find you. Let it spur us on to be people who want to give the Son of Man, and to seek out those who are lost. Help us for that. In Jesus' name, amen.